Great to be with you guys again this morning and um, thankful to worship with you as we do every Sunday. If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to take it now and open to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I just kind of feel uh, led by the Spirit in this moment just to break from, uh, for just a moment from what I kind of had prepared as an introduction and just reiterate what Phil said a minute ago. Um, we sing these words, um, be Jesus my glory, my soul satisfied. Um, I, uh, I agree with Phil that oftentimes we come in here and um, we, our hearts just aren't quite there. And so um, we take, we want other things to be glorified in our lives, ourselves. Mainly we put ourselves in the way. Um, I think you guys understand there where uh, the call in that song is that may, may my soul be satisfied in you, Lord. And I just want to say as we get started today, I realize that there's probably many of you who come in and, and you're like, you know what, Jesus is the satisfying element of my soul. And you can say it from the bottom of your heart. There are others here where you're probably like, hey, if I'm honest, I probably just lied when I sang those words, <laughs> you know, like, um, and then there are other people probably in the room today who are like, there is a longing in my soul. And maybe you've been trying to find that satisfaction elsewhere, and yet the Lord has brought you here today, I believe, so that you can hear the great message of his salvation, and that you could find the the satisfaction for the longing of your heart, which is found in knowing Christ. And so, um, all that to say, guys, just let your heart be open today to what the Lord is saying to you. Uh, Don't be afraid of letting the Holy Spirit touch your heart, make you feel, if needed, a little uncomfortable, and maybe in some ways letting the Holy Spirit bring you the comfort that you need today. Just keep your heart open today. Um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is where we're going to be today. Uh, Last Sunday, we took a little bit of a break from 2 Thessalonians in order to have our deacon and elders installation service, and it was great to do that. We had our first uh, elder meeting this past Monday, and uh, it was awesome to be with the guys and to have a sweet time of prayer yesterday with many of our deacons. Uh, it was just awesome. And so, um, you know, that was last week, taking a little break from Second Thessalonians. Next Sunday, we're actually going to have another break from Second Thessalonians. Um, next week, when we do our outdoor service for the 4th of July, um, outdoors at our main campus, again, like we reiterated um, earlier, 9.50 a.m. Hope to see you there. But One of our deacons, uh, Glenn Dewar, is actually going to be preaching next week on Philippians chapter 3 and uh, our call to have a biblical view of citizenship. Thought that was very apropos for it being 4th of July and our Independence Day. What what does a biblical view of citizenship look like? So Glenn is going to preach next week. I think it'll be great to have a British guy speaking on America's Independence Day. I think it'll be awesome. So um, hopefully, uh, hopefully he survives. All right. Getting into today's message, um, raise your hand real quick if anybody has ever heard of acrophobia. If you know what acrophobia is, hands up. All right, we got like five, seven, eight, nine hands, okay? Acrophobia is the fear of heights. Who has heard of uh, jephyrophobia? Anybody heard of jephyrophobia? It's a real thing. It's the fear of bridges. 
All right? A fear of crossing bridges. So what does it look like when you have somebody who has both acrophobia and jephyrophobia and uh, you kind of put them together in one situation? Here's what it looks like. It looks like people crossing glass bottom bridges in Taiwan. If you're like me, I don't know about you, but, but I get uneasy just thinking about crossing a, a, gra- a glass bottom bridge that that's, high, you know, that's that high up in the air. I would 100% as much as I wouldn't want to be, I would be the guy with the shaky legs. No doubt about it. Here's the thing. Those people struggled to stand firm on that bridge because they struggled to believe the truth about their situation, right? The truth is they had a firm foundation underneath them. The truth is they had handrails. You know, they weren't going anywhere, but they struggled to stand firm on that bridge because they struggled to believe the truth about their situation. Church family, here's the thing for us. We can struggle to stand firm in our faith when we struggle to believe the truth about our salvation, right? We can struggle to stand firm in our faith when we struggle to believe the truth about our salvation. Here we are in our fourth week going through this sermon series on 2 Thessalonians. Today we're going to be focused on verses 13 through 17 like Stephen read earlier. And here's the big idea that Paul is communicating in this text, and here's the big idea for us to take home uh, as a takeaway for us today. Here it is. Believing the truth about your salvation allows you to stand firm and be comforted until Christ returns. That's what Paul is saying in this text. Believing the truth about your salvation allows you to stand firm and be comforted until Christ returns. As we're going to see as we work through this text, the main call to action in this text is to stand firm. Verse 15 is really the main application for uh, the, the listeners that Paul was writing to. I just want to start there with verse 15. It says, so then brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Right, so Paul is calling them to stand firm. Why is he doing that? Why does he have to call them to stand firm? Right? Reflecting back on our first three weeks in our study through 2 Thessalonians, why is he calling them to stand firm? The reason is because they were becoming unfirm. Right? They, were, they were not standing firm. They were becoming flimsy and shaky and nervous about things. Specifically, they were becoming nervous about their faith and their salvation because they had started to wonder whether or not they missed Christ's return. They were kind of freaking out about the end times a little bit. So like the Thessalonian believers, some of us can find ourselves shaky in our beliefs too, especially when it comes down to things regarding Christ's return. We can get nervous about the end times, right? Isn't that, do you ever find yourself that way? You get a little nervous about how things are going to shake out in the end? Like, you know, like I mentioned before, like when I was growing up, always nervous about whether or not I missed the rapture or, you know, are we going to have to go through the tribulation? And we can become like the man on the bridge with the wobbly knees, right? Did I miss, did I miss the Lord's return? Pre-trip, post-trip, mid-trip, am I going to have to go through the tribulation and our knees get shaky? Is the Antichrist coming? Am I, did I take the mark of the beast? You know, am I, what's going to happen? Did God actually choose me for salvation? I don't know. And we start to become like these wobbly Christians. We become shaky in our faith when we think about Christ's return. But here's the good news, brothers and sisters. We don't have to be shaky about it. We don't have to be shaky. Because believing the truth about our salvation allows us to stand firm and be comforted until Christ returns. That's what Paul wants for these believers. He wants them to stand firm. Well, what does he mean? 
What does he mean when he says stand firm? He explains it in the very next phrase, right? So when he says stand firm, he immediately follows it up with and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. So I wanna make it very clear, when we're calling believers to stand firm, we're calling them to hold to the traditions that were taught by the apostles. Many of us think of something totally different when we read passages of scripture that say hold to our traditions. We think of traditions as being activities that we do. Um, Bedtime stories with our kids, Saturday morning pancakes, Advent at Christmas, first day of school pictures, first grade, whatever it is. Like we come up with these traditions and things that we do. And all through church history, there have been traditions and activities that have been kind of enacted within the church. But Paul is not telling the believers to hold on to activities. He's telling them to hold on to teachings, to truths, to beliefs. He's saying, look, believe the stuff. Believe the stuff that that you heard from us, whether we wrote it to you or if we told it to you. He's saying, don't buy into these new ideas that are coming from people who might be creeping in and teaching it among you or people who are sending you letters, signing my name, acting as if that came from me. He's saying, hold on. Hold on to the good old-fashioned teaching of the apostles, right? So church family, this is us today. We are to hold on to the traditional, original, old-fashioned teaching of the apostles. And when we do, we will stand firm in our faith. Now, church family, where do we get the old-fashioned, original teaching of the apostles? We get it where? In the book. We get it in the Bible. We get it in the the words that were written from the apostles to the church. And so we're going to get into God's word today. And here's how we're going to walk through our text. I want to show you today three truths about our salvation that you and I must believe if we want to stand firm in our faith. We're going to see those three truths straight out of verses 13 through 15. And then we're going to see how believing these truths actually helps us stand firm in our faith and be comforted. And then I want to close again, like usual, by asking you guys a few questions to consider. And here's the thing. If you are a follower of Jesus today, here's what I hope. I hope that you leave here believing the truth and having your heart greatly comforted. I hope you leave here today feeling comforted by the Holy Spirit. If you're not a believer, you might feel a little bit uncomfortable at times during this sermon, but if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, you can have the great comfort that he provides. Because here's what I know, over these past like two or three sermons in 2 Thessalonians, these have been very uncomfortable sermons, right? It's, they've been a little heavy, they've been weighty, we've been talking about Christ's coming and his destruction and condemnation of those who do not believe and obey they, those who do not obey the gospel we've talked about the antichrist and the great rebellion and the falling away and the eternal punishment that's going to come you know we've talked about the the right and just condemnation that god is going to give to those who don't believe and so those messages have been very weighty they've been very heavy but today's text from the apostle paul is like a totally different tone If you know Christ and if you follow him, I believe that if you embrace these truths that are in God's word, you will leave here today with your heart encouraged and comforted. So let's get into these three truths about our salvation today. Three truths about your salvation. Number one, believers, you were chosen by God. You were chosen by God. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 13, Paul writes and he says this, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you Brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you 
as the first fruits to be saved. So he says, Thessalonians, you're, you're the, God chose you to be first fruits. Well, what are first fruits? First, first fruits are, are a farming term. As you guys know, you know, think of any farmer, they, they plant crops and eventually the crops grow and the harvest is collected and some of the fruit that grows gets picked first to be taken in. And Paul is saying that these Thessalonian believers were some of the first harvest of souls that God picked to be taken in for salvation, right? So God chose you to be the first fruits uh, of those who are saved. So Paul, the Apostle Paul, who's writing this letter, consistently teaches that God chooses believers for salvation. Many examples of that throughout the New Testament. I just want to show you one other one today from the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5 says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Verse 4, For he chose us in him, that means God chose us to be in Christ, before the foundations of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. So what do we see in the book of Ephesians here? We see that if you're a Christian, God chose us. He did it before the foundations of the world. He predestined us in accordance with his pleasure and his will. All that means, uh, guys, well, it's not all this means, but one of the significant portions of what this means is that long before you and I ever thought about choosing Christ, he thought about choosing us. And I love the fact that the Apostle Paul says that he chose us to adoption for sonship, right? Adoption is such a beautiful picture of the gospel. Uh, Rachel and I have some family members who this past week uh, adopted a young girl named Rosemary, and they adopted her. You know, they, I just want you to think about adoption. When a child becomes ad adopted, that child has done nothing to deserve or earn the, the love and the affection of their adoptive parents. The adoptive parents just choose. I set my heart on you. I, my eye is on you. Our hearts are, are, are just totally open to you. And that's the way that adoption works. Adoptive parents don't love their adopted children because the adopted children are so worthy of love, right? It's just, it, they, they love those children because it's in their nature as adoptive parents to love. And that's the way it is with God. God adopts us into his family, not because we're so lovely, but because he's so loving, and he just brings us in, adopts us as his own. We didn't earn his love and his grace. All we can do is learn to respond to it. What a picture of God's saving grace. He didn't choose us. He didn't have to choose us, but he did. And he chooses us to be his own. Now, here's what I know. Every time we get into any text that talks about God choosing some for salvation, the controversy stirs up, okay? So I'm just gonna address it for a second. God's sovereignty versus man's responsibility when it comes to salvation. Every time it comes up, somebody inevitably comes and says, Jason, why do you address this stuff from the pulpit? Why do you talk about it? My answer when people ask, you know, ask that question is the same pretty much every time. The reason why I preach on anything, right? The, the reason why I preach on any topic is because 
it's in the book, right? It's here, right? I'm not up here to be a pro-Calvinist or pro-Arminian or anything like that. Uh, you might not even know what I mean by those words, and that's okay, but those of you who do, here's the deal. I'm here to be pro-Bible, and being pro-Bible means being pro-God. I mean, this is what he's given us. So what does the Bible teach us? The Bible teaches us, yes, that God wants all men to be saved, 1 Timothy 2.4, and that he chooses some for salvation, just like we read here in 2 Thessalonians and in Ephesians 1. The scripture teaches that God is willing that none should perish, 2 Peter 3, verse 9, and that he causes some to be born again, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, right? That's Peter, one of the apostles, saying, yep, God doesn't want anybody to perish, and yep, God causes some to be born again. The, the, the scripture says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, Romans 10, verse 13, and John chapter 6 tells us that all who the Father has given to the Son, that's who's going to come to Christ for salvation. So what do we have here? When it comes to a biblical understanding of salvation, what do we see? We see both man's responsibility and God's sovereignty going on at the same time. And for some of us, that just seems like a total logical contradiction and, and and we don't like it that way, so we argue about it tooth and nail. All the while, we will be so accepting of things like, you know what? Jesus was fully God and fully man. And we don't want to wrestle about that when we just accept it. Jesus was born of a virgin. Two seemingly contradictory things. We just accept it. You know, the Trinity exists as three in one, and we just accept it. But when it comes to this one, sometimes we have a hard time accepting it. People all through church history have wrestled with this, and I love Charles Spurgeon's response. Here's what Charles Spurgeon said many years ago. He says, if I see in God's book two truths which I cannot square with one another, I believe them both. Isn't that great? I believe them both. That's right there. So when it comes to a biblical understanding of salvation, what do we see? We see both man's responsibility and God's sovereignty, but listen, do not be afraid, do not be unwilling to acknowledge this truth. If you are saved, it is because God has chosen you. There may be other elements included into it, but that's there. And if you want to be a faithful Bible-believing Christian, you can't ignore it. Now, that's the first truth that you need to believe uh, that will provide comfort and encouragement to you in your salvation. And we're going to come back to this in a moment to talk about why that's important, uh, that why it does result in your comfort. But here's the second truth that the Apostle Paul wanted the Thessalonian church to believe, and he also wants us to believe today. And that is that we're not just chosen by God, but we are sanctified by the Spirit. We are sanctified by the Spirit. Verse 13 of our text, Paul says, God chose you as the first fruits of those to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through the gospel. So what does it mean that they were chosen um, through sanctification by the Spirit? The word sanctification means to be set apart. To be set apart from the world, kind of called and set aside for God's purposes. And so sanctification by the Spirit means that the Holy Spirit is the one who calls you out of the situation that everybody in this world is born into, and he calls you to be one of God's. He, the Holy Spirit calls you to be one of God's people set aside for his purposes. So this is how salvation happens, right? The Spirit initiates 
this work in our heart. He convicts us of our sin. He compels us to repent and believe in the truth. And, uh, and it's the work of the Spirit that does that that compels us to believe in the truth, like verse 13 says. This is the opposite of what verse 10 through 12 of uh, chapter 2 says. This is what you know, we covered last week. In last week's text, there we saw that those who refuse to believe the truth get condemnation, but here we see that those who choose to believe the truth get salvation. And those who have chosen to believe the truth and get salvation, how did that happen? Through the work of the Holy Spirit. So if you're saved and if you're sanctified, if you're set apart unto God, that all happens because of the power of the Holy Spirit working in you and in me. And when the Spirit's working in you, you will choose to believe the truth. That's why Paul says what he says. God chose yourself for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, right? There it is again. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. You were chosen by God, yet you chose to believe the truth. Ultimately, it's still God's work who sets you apart through the power of the Holy Spirit. There are many other passages of Scripture that reiterate the same point, but I want to show you Titus chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. And it says this, When the goodness... And loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us, not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters in Christ, like, what a joy it is like to take a moment and just reflect on the time when you were born again. When were you saved? Can you remember what was going on in that situation? Can you remember the feelings that you had? Can you remember the truth that was proclaimed to you? Can you remember your response to it? Think back to when you were saved. Because if you're truly saved, here's what didn't happen. You didn't think to yourself, well, God would be pretty, you know, he'd be, he'd be much better off if he had me on his team. I think I'm qualified for this, so... Lord, uh, in this prayer, I'd like to present to you my spiritual resume. Look at all my accomplishments from, you know, this date to this date. And look at all these good things I've done. Surely you'll want me on your team. Like, nobody's saved that way, right? None of us are saved because we came with our little record, spiritual resume of our, our record of righteousness. The way that we're saved is that we came humbly, admitting, like, how unrighteous we are. And we're saying, Lord, my, res my resume is full of nothing but failure, spiritual non-accomplishment. And Lord, I'm a terrible sinner in need of a great Savior, so I need you. So church family, how do we get to that point? How do we get to the point where we're willing to admit the brokenness of our sin, our sinful selves? Where do we get to the point where we believe that the solution for our sinfulness is the gospel of Jesus Christ and turning to him and his death on the cross in our place, where do we even start to believe? Why would we actually ever start to think that, that those things were true? You know how? Through the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. We are sanctified through the Holy Spirit. That's the second truth about our salvation and we need to believe it today. Here's the third truth that Paul wanted them to believe and that's the truth that we will be also glorified with Jesus Christ. So the first truth, God has chosen us to be saved. Second truth, we are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Third truth, we will be glorified with Jesus Christ. What does it mean to obtain the glory of Jesus Christ in verse 14? 
Verse 14 says, he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean that we obtain Christ's glory? It means like all the things that we've talked about over the past studies in 2 Thessalonians, that one day that Christ is gonna return, he's gonna crush his enemies, he's gonna punish the unbeliever, he's gonna stand in victory one day, and it means that on that day we're gonna share in his glory. Remember what we talked about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, where it says in verse 10 that he's gonna come on that day to be glorified in his saints, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, that he will come and be glorified in his saints and he's gonna be marveled at among all who believed because our testimony to you was believed. What this means is that Christ, when Christ comes and he wins and he is victorious, he's gonna be glorified and he's gonna allow us to share in his glory. And I know that for some of us that might seem a little bit weird to think about because what do we always, we, we always use the language of things are done for God's glory alone and, and soli deo gloria, you know, glory in, in, in Christ alone and, and we absolutely should say and believe those things. But here's what the scripture teaches us. The Lord who is deserving of all glory will one day choose to share that glory with us. And that is a mind-blowing privilege we get little glimpses of this sometimes in our, in our world today, little, little hints toward this. You know, you ever watch a sports team where um, some, you know, they've had some great victory, they've won a championship, they win the Super Bowl, they, they win the World Series, something like that, and inevitably there's always kind of one player who has, you know, kind of the, the MVP, the best player on the team, whatever it is, and uh, what happens after, you know, the, the championship game is won and all the little... Uh, What's the stuff that falls? Confetti is falling down from the ceiling and all the music is playing and everybody's cheering. What does that person do? Inevitably, they go and they, they grab their wife and their kids and they put their kids up on their shoulders and they carry them around and put them in front of the microphone and on the camera. And what do we see? They, they, he, he's eventually gonna take that, that family home with him and all the reward and the financial blessings and everything else that come his way as a result of his accomplishment, what's he gonna do? He's gonna share it with his family. Those kids didn't earn one bit of the glory, but the one who did chose to share his glory with them. And that's the way it's gonna be with us and the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't earn one bit of the glory. We don't earn one bit of the ultimate victory in the Christian life, yet Jesus Christ himself, if you are one of his own, he will choose to share it with you. He will choose to share it with you. So God doesn't just choose to save us so that we can be spared from hell. God chooses to save us so that we can share in the glory of Christ. And that's an amazing truth. So again, here are these three truths that Paul wants the Christians to believe. Number one, they were chosen by God. They were sanctified by the Spirit. They will be glorified with Christ. Now, in light of those three truths and traditions, what does Paul say? Verse 15, if you still got your Bibles open, what does Paul say in verse 15? In light of those three truths, so then, right? In light of all, because, so then, all this stuff we just said, these three truths, so then, brothers, stand firm. Hold to the traditions you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Paul is saying, believe those truths about your salvation. Hold to them. Don't lose your grip. Cling to them for dear life. Stand firm. Keep believing what you were taught. 
And Paul knows that when they do, then they will receive the comfort and encouragement that they need, especially as they think about what's ahead in the end times and the return of Christ. And so Paul writes them this beautiful benediction in verse 16 and 17. This is Paul's prayer for them. This is his pronouncement over them. He says in verse 16 and 17, Now, right, if you believe these things and if you're standing firm in those beliefs, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, may he comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Paul's desire is for them to be comforted. The word comfort here in verse 16 and 17 in the original Greek language is the word, um, it's the word uh, paraklesis. And it means, it means to come alongside para and to give courage. Why does Paul mention that here? Why does he mention that God is going to, paraclesis them, right? Like God's gonna come alongside. He's gonna give them that eternal comfort through Christ. You know why he's emphasizing this eternal comfort? It's because he had just been emphasizing the eternal discomfort that those who don't believe in Christ are gonna have. And he's saying, believers, that eternal discomfort, that's not for you. The Holy Spirit is gonna be the alongsider in your life Reminding you of the eternal comfort that you have through God. Because remember, guys, he's, he's writing to them saying, I know you're scared that you got left behind, but you don't need to worry about that. You know, the, your minds can be put at ease. You can stop freaking out about, you know, the, the scary things you read in the Left Behind series and the Thief in the Night movie from the 70s, right? Like, you don't need to wig out. Paul is writing to comfort them. What's the big idea of this text and what's the big idea of this sermon? Here's the big idea. Believing the truth about your salvation allows you to stand firm and be comforted until Christ returns. That's the big idea. So in light of that truth that we've just unpacked, I wanna ask you now to consider some personal questions. Would you guys join me in that? Like right now, like we're gonna bring three questions for you to consider. And I know this is kind of what we do regularly as we go through sermons, but would you actually open up your heart to what the Holy Spirit is maybe going to say to you right now. Here are three questions to consider. Number one, do you need God's comfort about the times in which we're living? Do you need God's comfort about the times in which we're living? You know, we've talked a lot about the end times lately. These past few weeks in this sermon, we've we've talked about how Christ is going to come and he's going to bring punishment and destruction upon his enemies and and we've talked about how the antichrist is going to rise up and there's going to be a great deception and many who think they believe are eventually going to fall away in a great rebellion like does that stuff wig you out does that make you very uneasy and uncomfortable in your spirit maybe for you right now you're you're paying attention to what's going on in culture you see international affairs and politics and leaders that are rising up around the world and it freaks you out. Maybe for some of you, you're, you're not worried about end time stuff at all, but the future is still very uncertain for you. Health issues have arisen that are making you really scared. Things are falling apart in your family. You don't know 
about how you're going to provide for your family because your career has a ton of uncertainty. Who knows? Who knows what it is? But stuff in the future is scaring you. I want you to know, if God, if God has chosen you and made you his own, he is never going to let you go. He is like a loving father who will care for every need of his children. And so for you, where does your hope come from? Where does your real, does, does your hope come from actually believing the truth that God loves you and has chosen you, made you his own? If you find yourself really uncertain about the times in we're living, that we're living in, you need to know that God promises to bring comfort to his church. The question is, are you part of his church? To use the biblical term, do you have salvation? Have you been saved? So this is a second personal question for you to consider. Is this, everybody in this room, do you sense God calling you unto salvation? Do you sense God calling you unto salvation? We have talked in the past few weeks about the discomfort that's coming for those who are not saved. We've talked today about the comfort that God promises to give to those who truly are saved. And for some of you, maybe you're just not sure, right? Like, Maybe you don't know if you're saved. Maybe you're not exactly sure where you stand in God's eyes. Maybe there's regularly some anxiety in your heart about that because you don't know whether or not you're one of God's own. We talked today about how the Holy, God sanctifies us through the Holy Spirit. So when you, when you are saved, God gives you the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit will be working in your heart to reassure you, you are one of God's own. He does love you. You will be spared from the wrath to come. There will be encouragements from the Holy Spirit going on in your heart. Some of you need to choose to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit rather than the voice of the world. Some of you may not have that assurance, but right now in this moment, there's just something going on inside you where you can feel that urging in your heart. You can feel that it's like, a, it's like your heart is being tugged to respond to something. That's what we call the urging of the Holy Spirit, the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You can't quite explain it, but it's going on in there. You know what that is? That's the Holy Spirit calling you to be saved. And anybody who's here today, if you will call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. We talk about the ABCs of salvation. A, admit that you're a sinner B, believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross in your place for your sins and that God raised him from the dead three days later, showing that he has power over, vict over victory, he has victory over sin and death. Admit you're a sinner, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior. In prayer, tell the Lord, tell the Lord, I want you to be my Savior, come into my life. I submit to you as king and lord of my life. I want you. And when you admit, believe, and confess, you'll be saved. So let today be the day of your salvation if you sense the Lord calling you. Number three, for those of us who have been saved, believers, this is the charge for us. Will we take comfort in the truths of our salvation? Will we take comfort in the truths of our salvation? Will we believe these truths that Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church 2,000 years ago almost. Uh, will we believe these truths about our salvation that he wrote for their comfort? 
Because pastorally speaking, here's what I want to just address with our church right now. Uh, I think that many Christians in the world, maybe a few in our church, we read 2 Thessalonians, and rather than reading it through the appropriate lens with the intention of the author and the Holy Spirit to, to give us comfort, rather than reading it with the intention of comfort, here's what we do. We read 2 Thessalonians, and we want to use it as ammunition for end times debates. Well, I read 2 Thessalonians, and I predict this is going to happen here, and I'm going to figure out who the restrainer is, and we're going to argue about whether it's pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. And, you know, here's the thing we have to remember. Paul did not write this so that we can have eschatology debates. He wrote this so that the church can be comforted. And ultimately, what does Paul want the church to take comfort in? Verse 13, verse 16. He wants them to take comfort in the fact that the God of heaven loves his people. Verse 13, he says, you beloved in the Lord. You who were chosen by God for salvation, you are beloved in the Lord. In verse 16, what does he say to them? May the God uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ, our God and Father who loved us. Church family, we have got to be aware of our own tendency to get so Christianized and theological and, you know, uh, you know, we kind of get so educated that what we want to do is just debate things and figure out facts. And guys, let's just come back to the basic fact. None of us in this world, none of us in this world deserved God's love, yet he has chosen to give it to us. He loves you. Church family, the Lord who commands the angels' armies and causes demons to shudder loves you. The Lord who speaks and the universe comes into existence and the Lord who whispers in a still small voice, he loves you. The, the Lord who holds every star in place and also says, hey, little children, you can come and, and sit on my lap. The Lord who created the things in this world that we enjoy like colors and sunsets and beaches and the emotions that we feel is the same Lord who controls quantum physics and he loves you. And the Lord who can rain down fire from heaven also keeps his eyes on sparrows. He loves you. And we are beloved by him. So think on these truths of your salvation. Church family, you have been chosen by God. Why is that a comfort to you? Because God didn't choose poorly. He didn't make a mistake he chose you, and he chose rightly. You have been set apart, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Why is that a comfort to your heart? Because the work of the Holy Spirit that brought you to salvation is also going to seal you for the day of redemption. Church family, when it comes to us sharing in the glory of Christ, you know why that should give us comfort? Because we will never ever come under the wrath or condemnation of God. Beloved church family, we are loved by God. So today, believing the truth about your salvation allows you to stand firm and be comforted until Christ returns. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you've chosen us that you've just set your heart on us for whatever, for the, whatever 
purpose, for the purpose of your pleasure, as the word says. You've just, you've just chosen to love us. And I want to thank you, Lord, for those of us who are saved. Thank you that, that you take joy in saving us. And now, Lord, I pray that you would let us be a people who take joy in the salvation that you have given. Lord, um, this world is very uncertain. And many of us are concerned about the things that we see unfolding We know for sure that we are closer today to the return of Christ than we were 2,000 years ago when this scripture was written. We know we're closer now, and we see these events unfolding, and I pray, Father, that ultimately, because of the truths of our salvation, that we would find great comfort in knowing that we are yours. And Lord, for anybody who's here today, and they're not sure. They don't know if they're yours, or maybe they flat out, they know that they're not, but they want to be. I pray, Lord, that today would be the day where they admit their sin, believe upon Christ, and confess him as Lord and Savior, and that they would be saved. And Lord, I pray that you would help us as a church to rest in the truths, to stand firm, even when it kind of feels like we're standing on a glass bridge and we can't see clearly every single thing that you're doing right now. Yet, Lord, I pray that you would let us in faith trust that you truly are the foundation of our hope and that by your grace, um, you will bring us all the way